tonight, Mark Wahlberg is here exclusively to talk about a new family-friendly version of his hit film, Father Stew, returning to theaters December 9th. And communist China's zero COVID measures are causing very public unrest as citizens tire of the draconian policies. Is the CCP losing its ability to control its people? Asian affairs expert Gordon Chang is here with analysis. And the German bishops made their ad limit of visits to Rome recently. What does the Pope have to say about the German synodal way? The National Catholic Register's Edward Penton brings us the latest on this and more. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to send a comment, send it to me via tweet at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. Some sad news to report. Film and television star Clarence Gilliard passed away this week at the age of 66. You might remember Clarence from blockbusters like Die Hard and Top Gun. But he was perhaps best known for his role opposite Chuck Norris in Walker, Texas Ranger. After his time on Walker, Gilliard became an associate professor in the theater department at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Clarence was raised Lutheran, but became Catholic in the wake of a painful divorce. He said the Eucharist is what drew him to the church. He even served as a consultant to the Communications Committee of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. I was privileged to call Clarence a friend. He will be sorely missed. Clarence Gayard, rest in peace, my friend. When Father Stew hit theaters earlier this year in April, it became a box office hit grossing more than $20 million against a $4 million budget. However, there always seemed to be one constant complaint, the salty language. Now, over six months later, Mark Wahlberg is releasing a brand new cut of the film, in theaters nationwide. I sat down with him recently in Atlanta on the set of his upcoming film to talk about Father Stew Reborn. Here's my exclusive interview with Academy Award nominated Mark Wahlberg. All right, Mark, Father Stew is reborn at Christmas. How is he being reborn? Uh, with a very clean, edited version, PG-13, we have removed all of the cuss words. I think every single cuss word has been removed and finally approved by uh, the Archbishop and the other powers. Now, as I recall, when the Archbishop first saw this film—which Archbishop was it? Archbishop, Archbishop Thomas, who actually okay. ordained Fathers too. Okay. And he was a little concerned about the language, and you said, we're going to leave it in. Why? Well, he was more than a little concerned um, because he also knew who Stu was and what a colorful vocabulary he had. And, but we wanted to remain um, true to who he was and, and to show that authenticity and that grit uh, mm -hmm. that Stu, I think, made him more relatable to most of his parishioners and people that, you know, uh, that he helped and that he worked with. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, but, but I did understand where he was coming from. So we actually showed the bishop the movie. Uh-huh. 
he had cried. He watched it with a number of other priests and uh, another uh, bishop-elect. And then he literally, after 10 minutes of crying, he wrote me this wonderful letter, a glowing endorsement of the movie. But you could tell that he still was not really okay with the language. So I do mm. give him sole credit for demanding that we do a PG-13 version of yeah. the movie. But the audience wanted to see it too. I think when families went to see the movie or parents, you know, I think they were a little frustrated because they didn't want to expose their kids to that sort of language. Yeah. But I think it, it reminds me very much uh, of the first movie and theatrical experience that I had with my dad. I went to see a movie called Hard Times. It was starred Charles Bronson and James <laughs> Coburn. And I remember that Directed movie. by Walter Hill. It was very inappropriate for a seven-year-old at the time, but it, it stuck with me forever. So I think, um, and there's no bad language in that movie. Really? There's a bare knuckle fighting yeah, and stuff fine, like that. It's, it's, it's an edgy film, violent, but, yeah. but, um, but you know, to, to see that movie and then to have had that stick with me for as long as it did, I think if we can get young people to see the movie, the PG-13 version, I think the curiosity will peak enough that they'll want to then see the original later on mm -hmm. when they are of the, of the proper okay. age. Okay, when the Father Stew DVD came out, mm -hmm. the marketers at Sony sent this curse jar out. No, they did. Yes, they did. So oh <laughs> I want you to hold this and I want to ask a question of you. If it's a dollar per profanity that you removed from the movie, how much would Mark Wahlberg have to put in that oh my in, my, in Raymond's curse yard? Because I'm taking it back home. It was well over 75 F-bombs alone. <laughs> so Not all of them in the script, a certain directorist told me. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, we did do a lot of impro improv in the film. But again, I think, you know, um, Stu was a very kind of... Uh, colorful colorful guy we wanted to show all the goods you know the pros and the cons and all the things that it took him to experience in mm -hmm. his life to actually help him to find his calling okay Rosalind told me that there might have been 150 profanities removed not that she was counting or anything I think that is that is correct two weeks of editing yes is there like 20 minutes gone from the movie no how no, does it be play? surprised it plays just as good really it really does and you know it's one of those things where um, Nobody could have convinced me to take it out originally. Mm -hmm. I just felt like, you know, we would be compromising. And, you know, mm -hmm. you had so many faith-based movies that were preaching to the choir but not really converting anybody else who was either mm -hmm. a lapsed Catholic or somebody who was on the fence or somebody who was very standoffish. Right. You and know. It didn't have that saccharine flavor that you get from a lot of these faith-based yeah. movies. Yeah. And it was funny. Yeah. Let's face it, the movie is really funny and yeah. it plays well, I think, for younger audiences. It's also touched so many people. I've never had a film... Uh, or reaction to a film in the way that I have with Father Stu. I mean, the letters that I've gotten from people, uh, the profound impact that the film has had on so many people, it's, um, it really is mind-boggling. And to see how it's, you know, audiences have discovered it in their own way, yeah. whether it be through Netflix or, you know, video on demand, I mean, it's really yeah. continued to build. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, I think, but, I mean, to get Sony to re-release a movie the same year it was released, yeah. that's a pretty incredible thing. Yes. Why did they decide to do that? Why did you want to have it re-released? Well, I think they also saw a unique opportunity to touch a much broader audience and to touch a younger audience, hmm. um, which, which we really feel like is important. And, and I know that uh, the Archdiocese, they really wanted the students to be able to go and see the movie mm -hmm. and they wanted to encourage them, but you know, they weren't able to fully commit to that. Because uh, of the language. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know something, Father? There's a sign on the wall in my gym back home. Hope is not a tactic. I took that one to heart. Off everything I earned. This ain't no different. I think I know what God's doing here. <laughs> Seeing how I respond, I don't get my way. But I ain't giving up. Not on him or me. I want you to reconsider your rejection. You are a pugilist with a criminal record. Well, look at St. Matthew. 
St. Augustine, St. Francis. I mean, some of the most remarkable figures in the history of the church are reformed men. Yes, but I think what the church needs now more than ever is to elevate the standard for a priest. No, what the church needs is somebody who's going to fight for God. That's me. You said that this is the most important film of your career. Mm -hmm. Why? Do you still feel that way? Oh, absolutely, by far. I mean, that's why I was willing to just cut a check to, to, to get the movie made. You know, mm -hmm. it's not an easy pitch. No. You go in there and say, you know, a guy who was a fighter and a hellraiser becomes a priest who touches many, many people while dying of a rare muscular degenerative disease. It's not an easy sell. No, it's not. But, no. It, but it played beautifully. And it's a complex tale that yes. you all pulled off in an incredible way. I, I, I have to share this with you. Um, there's this really incredible scene in the movie, and I just watched it again with my family, where Father Stu literally crawls to the altar, mm -hmm. and he's in such pain. He's crying out to God because he's finally reached his goal, and this disease is taking him. Mm -hmm. I know your mother, Alma, had just died when you were shooting that. How much of that is Father Stu, and how much of that is Mark? Uh, well, you know, I always, I don't have any other thing other than my real life experience to draw on when I'm playing a character, you know, and mm -hmm. I try to play characters that I can identify with and relate to in some sort of very authentic way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you can't help but all, all of the things that I tap into are, you know, real things that I've experienced along mm -hmm. the way. So having that being so, um, so fresh, mm -hmm. it, it was just, uh, yeah, you couldn't help but, you know, thinking about that. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, uh, again, most of the time because of the suffering that she went through, I felt a lot more joy every time I thought about my mom because mm. of all the wonderful things that she did and all the amazing things that she did to touch people in her own life and her own experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you continue her legacy, really. And, I, and this project, the timing of this project with her passing, I thought was uh, there's something there. There's something yeah. there. It, it definitely put things in perspective for me to mm -hmm. see her suffering that way with such grace, too, and dignity at the same time. When you approach either Father Stu or the role you're playing now, mm -hmm. do you go, do you use your personal life or do you use an imaginative preparation? How do you approach it as an actor? No, I always do. I always. I think that's that's the the one good thing that I've been able to take from all of my real life experience, um, and apply that to my work. You know, a lot of people have kind of you know learned different techniques and studied, yeah. and you know uh, have different tricks of the trade that allow them to get to a place emotionally. And I've experienced a lot of that in real life, so it's yeah. it's pretty easy to draw on. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I can't help but doing that. I always try to find something that's a personal connection for me yeah. and the part to then be able to hopefully do a much more authentic uh, portrayal mm. of the character. Tell me about the importance of this movie coming out again at Christmas time. Now you released it last time during the Easter season. What is it the importance of having Father Stu reemerge, if you will, at Christmas time and a time when families come together? Well, no more, no more important time than the holidays, you know. And I think people, again, they really need to be reminded of what's important in life, you know. Mm -hmm. Having their faith and, you know, celebrating that faith in their family and connecting. And really understanding, you know, everything happens for a reason and, and hopefully understanding God's bigger picture and, you know, how, even with this movie, like, we obviously wanted it to find as big an audience as possible right away because that's kind of like the path that most movies take to success, yeah. right, in the industry. This movie has taken its own path and people continue to discover it and it right. continues to grow and grow. Uh, that's why, you know, the studio wanted to release it. They felt like there was definitely something happened when a movie performs on video on demand or on Netflix. Um, 
after that, like a blockbuster, you know, then obviously they feel like, you know, there's oh. something there that audiences want to see and will gravitate towards. You just gotta figure out in these in these unprecedented times with yeah. COVID and everything else and mm -hmm. people not going to see dramas, uh, how to, you know, find an audience that will discover the film. Well, I love that you and the studio are responsive to the audience, which is an odd thing. Usually uh, audiences force fed what the studios yeah. want and that's the end of the story. Yeah. Here you not only adapted the story to, to welcome a bigger audience, but you're responding to an obvious audience need. That's yeah. a rare and good thing, I think. Yeah, and it's amazing that the studio is willing to recognize that yeah. and be as supportive as they have and, and, and you know, give it another opportunity at the box. At the center of this story is really an accident that happens to Father Stu. It's his wake-up call. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? I certainly have had a few. I've had a few in my younger life, um, you know, kind of me being you know, wrapped up in my own world, doing my own thing. So as, as an adolescent, and then of course, as a parent, and right. I, I'm continuing to have those moments over and over and over again. Yeah, you relive you know? them. But I think the, the, the big moment, the, the most recent big moment is like, you know what, it is what it is. Certain things are just out of my control. Let me focus on the things that mm. I can and everything else I put in God's hands. Yeah, well, I, lo I read the story recently, and this is something you told years ago, where you're at a father-daughter dance, mm -hmm. and they are playing songs with the unedited explicit lyrics. Yes, yes And you went to the DJ and said, Yeah. You gotta cut this off. So it's father, well, daughter, these nine-year-old girls. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, when I read that, I thought, here you come full circle and you're doing it with the movie, yeah. even a movie you loved, yeah. and you did tell in an honest, forthright way. But that language might have kept some young eyes away from it. That might need well, it. Yeah, the young eyes are the most important anyway. Obviously, there are futures so we want to be able to make sure that you know, we, we introduce them to as much love of the Lord as we possibly can. Yeah, I love it. Well, yeah. I'm gonna leave it there and give you the last word. What do you want families to experience through this new recut of Father Stew what? at Christmas? Oh, I don't think there's anything better than them experiencing it together, you know, in a theater with other families and hopefully spreading the word and spreading the love. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, we all know that Christmas, it's a wonderful and festive time, but the real meaning behind Christmas uh, has much more to do with our faith uh, in the good Lord. So, you know, I think it's, uh, it's perfect timing. And again, the, God has his own plan and his own time. And, you know, how he's having audiences discover this film, it's been incredible to see. And the, 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 such a wide uh, audience that, I mean, I've gotten letters from people from all walks of life who have found the movie Discover. I, I've read this amazing letter from this woman who thought she was going to see Uncharted, walked into the wrong Mark Wahlberg movie and was blown away. And she was, you know, a uh, Muslim woman. And, you know, huh. she was really uh, amazed at how similar our faith is, Judaism, as well as Islam. And uh, wow. just amazing, extraordinary experiences. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've heard similar things because yeah. people saw the interviews we did and they've written about personal conversions, awareness of people in their lives who were suffering that they've become attuned to mm. in a new way. Yeah. I mean, and the power of suffering, which is a hard topic to tackle in a movie that I thought you all did such a beautiful job yeah. with. That's a hard, how it do you is find very redemption It's just unfortunately, you know, if you're lucky enough to live a long time, it's inevitable, right? So right. how you deal with that, how you approach that is, uh, you know, mm -hmm. look, I'm 51 years old. I've got a lot of ailments. I mean, people think, you know, I work out all the time. I'm in shape, yeah, but I'm as banged up as it gets, you know? Uh -huh. So, uh, I, you know, I start looking at things very differently, that's for sure. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful movie. I hope people go see it. And thank you for thank all the support. I appreciate it. Oh, please, yeah, my pleasure. I really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, bro. <laughs>
Father Stew Reborn, starring Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, directed and written by Rosalind Ross, returns to theaters December 9th. Now rated PG-13. Check those local listings. It's worth your time. Uh, the Wise Men Who Found Christmas is now available in bookstores everywhere and online, as you know. I've been having the most incredible time on the tour. This is a bit of my stop in my hometown at the Barnes & Noble in New Orleans. Watch this. Thank you all so much for coming out. And my band came. It's nice that they're here. First of all, I'm delighted to be home and to see you all. When I started this, I was going to write a, a book about the legend of the wise men. And what I quickly realized is almost everything we know about the wise men is a legend. There were probably more than three of them. They were not kings, and they were not from the Far East. It will change the way you think of Christmas every year from now on. My book tour rolls on with just three more stops. I'll be at the Barnes & Noble in Brentwood, Tennessee, near Nashville, on Saturday, December 3rd. And on Saturday, December 10th, Washington, D.C., at the Museum of the Bible. And on the 16th, I'll be at Books and Greetings in Northvale, New Jersey. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. Of course, the book is also available at the EWTN catalog. In China, police have been clashing with protesters throughout the country after 10 people were burned alive in their apartments. This after the Chinese Communist Party reportedly locked them inside as part of its new COVID lockdowns. Just how serious is the situation in China? And what do these protests indicate about the direction of the Chinese Communist Party? Joining me with answers is China affairs expert, columnist, and author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War, Gordon Chang. Gordon, thanks for being with us. Uh, these protests we are seeing are no small thing in China. They originated from the party's zero COVID policy, but now th they seem to really be protests against Xi and the party itself, with protesters chanting down with Xi Jinping. How serious are these protests? Yeah, this is stunning, Raymond. And the reason is that, uh, yes, it was the zero COVID policies that uh, contributed to those 10 deaths on November 24th. But immediately, people went to the root cause of this, that they realized the Communist Party's system didn't work, was causing all of these problems, including deaths. And yeah, they were chanting uh, down with Xi Jinping, down with the Communist Party. And we got to remember that in 1989, uh, we had months of protests in about 370 Chinese cities. Then um, the Chinese people didn't want the Communist Party to go. They just wanted the party to get rid of a hardliner and to sort of open up a little bit. Now the people have mm -hmm. revolutionary sentiments. Mm. Uh, we saw the Chinese this week back down on some of these zero COVID policies. Have these protesters succeeded in a way? Um, there are indications in reports that the regime will loosen up zero COVID. But we've got to remember that on November 11th, in response to protest in Zhengzhou at that iPhone plant, that the regime announced 20 liberalizations. And those really weren't implemented, or they were implemented in half-hearted fashion. Um, I think what's happened, though, is that the protests since uh, the no November 24th fire we're so serious that the regime right now is terrified. And so it is backing down. 
Um, but, you know, we're going to have to just wait and see what actually is implemented. Got to remember mm -hmm. that uh, the, um, the government's been building these enormous quarantine facilities, 250,000 units in Guangzhou alone. Right. And that's a real indication they're going to do something really hard line. Mm. Yeah, I want to get to that again in a moment. But uh, we've seen the police brutality here against these protesters. But for the most part, the protests have not been stopped by the CCP. I mean, you, you had the People's Daily, the leading publication in China, doubling down on the zero COVID policy created by Xi. Why do you think Xi didn't crack down harder on these protests? I mean, he could have swept them away. Why not? I think that probably he was a little bit worried about the police. Um, you know, mm. he uh, controls the army and, and looks all powerful. But you got to remember that uh, people in the police, people in the army, they're people too. And um, there's a lot of sympathy for what the protesters are talking about. Because these zero COVID measures, uh, which have been in place now since early 2020, um, they're hated. Um, and that's a sentiment mm. across society. And that's why immediately after that fire, um, there were these demonstrations yeah. in east and west, south, north and south. And there was no coordination. There was no leadership. There was this no organization. This is because the Chinese people are thinking the same way. And I think Xi Jinping realized that there was only so much that he could do. Mm. You tweeted out, and you mentioned it a moment ago, video of this newly constructed quarantine camp in Guangzhou. Uh, the, the, it's being completed to hold 250,000 people. Is the CCP planning on imprisoning people, do you think? And, and, and what about treating them, and why are we hearing no condemnation from the Biden administration or the U.N. regarding the human rights uh, being endangered here? Or, or the, the rights that could be endangered, given these uh, facilities we see? Yeah. The, the erection of these facilities, I think, does indicate that the regime is thinking of uh, imprisoning um, mass numbers of Chinese, because it's not just the one in Guangzhou. Mm. Um, they, these things are being built across the country in large numbers. Wow. Um, and obviously, disease control can't be the explanation for it. So, yes, we can only speculate what Xi Jinping is thinking, but the objective factors indicate a mass imprisonment of the people in China. And as for President mm. Biden, um, these dispiriting comments from his administration on Monday uh, are a real indication that, um, first of all, I, I think Biden doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, if he is, he's, mm. um, he's sort of given up on freedom and democracy. And remember, uh, when he was campaigning for president, he was contrasting himself with President Trump, saying that he, Biden, would be the human rights president. Well, that's not been the case, because he has not been standing for human rights anywhere, really. Uh, not mm -hmm. Hong Kong, not Iran, and certainly not in China this past week. Yeah. You mentioned those protests at the iPhone plant in Zhangzhou. Um, as a result of new contracts that negatively affected employer salaries or benefits, bonuses. There's been a lot of police brutality at those protests. What do they tell us about the control the CCP has on the people of China? It seems things are getting out of hand, uh, Gordon, and they really don't control the people or, or, or their passions the way they once did. 
Yeah, the Zhengzhou protests are really um, extraordinary. I mean, they started at the end of last month where we had uh, the workers escaping the plant, climbing over fences, um, walking through the fields, um, and also the response of the communities around the plant to help the workers flee. And, and they were at great risk to themselves by helping the workers. Um, you know, in many respects, you mm -hmm. could say that this is the most important factory in China. We know that the Communist Party spent a lot of time trying to figure out what went wrong, and the last couple of weeks have been putting together um, all sorts of makeshift solutions. But those makeshift solutions actually made matters worse, and they flared up the protests again, as we witnessed mm. about a week ago. And people are saying that, uh, and I think this is exaggeration, but there's blood on the streets now in Zhengzhou. Um, but the point is that uh, despite all the incentives the party had to get this right, they completely screwed it up. Hmm. How could the instability in China impact the United States? I mean, this is an important iPhone factory, and this is just one of so many industries that are instricably bound up in the international, in international commerce, as well as commerce with the United States. The first thing, of course, is um, the supply chains will be disrupted. You know, first, there have been problems at this plant for quite some time, and there was a lot of happy talk from Apple. Now they're becoming a bit more realistic. Um, they can advertise iPhone 14s all they want in the U.S. question is whether they'll be able to deliver them. But the more um, mm. fundamental impact, I think, is that Xi Jinping, he's lost hearts and minds in, in China. And the only way that he can unify the Chinese people right now is to go to war with somebody create some incident. Um, yeah. And that could be, of course, against Taiwan, Japan, Philippines, uh -huh. India, and against us, because he's been challenging our planes, for instance, in international airspace. Mm, yeah, well, we, we saw that flyover the other day in, in uh, South Korea. Uh, so it, it's, it's clear that he is engaging in provocative uh, incitements to see, I guess, to test what the reaction will be. How do you think the U.S. would respond uh, should China do something awful against Taiwan, for instance? Um, you know, we've heard President Biden on those four media interviews saying the U.S. would intervene militarily. But after those mm -hmm. four interviews, we've heard his subordinates um, contradict him. Um, and really yep. what this says is that the administration's in disarray and really has not crafted a response. Um, President Biden tried to clean it up after his uh, summit with Xi Jinping uh, at the G20. You know, we really don't know. Um, and this is going to be, I think, the critical test of American credibility, not just in Taiwan or not just in Asia, but around the world. So I hope that President Biden's mm. response is vigorous and that we will defend Taiwan, yeah. because for so many reasons, defending Taiwan is defending America. Well, Gordon, you mentioned this earlier. Um, the, the, the White House statements on these protests have been muted at best. Uh, week at worst. Uh, earlier this week, the White House's National Security Council said this of the protests. We've long said everyone has a right to peacefully protest here in the United States and around the world. This includes in the PRC. Now, no condemnation of the zero COVID policy, no condemnation of Xi and his thug state. Why is the Biden administration being so careful to condemn anything happening in China? And what should their posture be, Gordon? 
I wish I could see into the head of Biden. Um, but, you know, I, I, my guess is just that he's got this outdated notion that we cannot anger China. And, of course, he wants Beijing's assistance on climate change. Um, both of those are wrongheaded for various reasons. Um, but the most important thing for an American president to do is to stand up for our values, for freedom and for democracy, because if we don't do it, nobody else mm -hmm. will. And the Chinese will notice yeah. our uh, inability to um, support our own ideals, and they will press the advantage. Mm -hmm. This happened in 2009 when Secretary Hillary Clinton, um, she said she wasn't going to press human rights with the Chinese. And the Chinese immediately then engaged in an act which actually constituted an act of war against the U.S. They had attacked an American ship in international water. You know, I, Biden was vice president then. He should have known what would happen then, and he should know what's going to happen now. Hmm. I want to move on to a meeting that took place earlier this month. Chinese bishops, priests, theologians of the country's state-run church, the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, formally briefed Hong Kong clergy on implementing Xi's socialistic vision of religion. In his opening speech, Bishop Shen Bin, president of the China's Catholic Bishop Con Bishops Conference, stressed that Xi had, quote, once again put forward the requirement of adhering to the direction of sinicization of religion in China and actively guiding religion to adapt to the socialist society, and that the Catholic Church in China was gradually determined to follow the path of sinicization that is compatible with the socialist society in terms of pastoral care, evangelization, and formation. Gordon, your thoughts on what the bishop had to say and how much reach does mainland China now have in Hong Kong when it comes to religion? Um, when it comes to religion in Hong Kong, as everything else, um, Beijing runs um, the former British colony. Um, really, what Xi Jinping is doing is he is trying to eliminate Christianity uh, and Catholicism in China. And his agreement with uh, Pope Francis, which has just been renewed, um, and in which he's already violated a uh, number of times, uh, is, I think, yep. um, undermining faith in, in China. What we have seen from, from indications are that uh, people have sort of left the patriotic Catholic Church. Um, they are going into underground Catholic, um, um, uh, the, the underground Catholic Church. And what we are also mm -hmm. seeing is the underground Protestant Church, um, I think, benefiting yeah. from the persecution. Um, because the harder the Communist Party persecutes Christians, the more the faith in China flourishes, both Catholic and Protestant. So um, mm -hmm. I, I think that Xi Jinping is very clear. He wants to eliminate faith, um, and there should be no compromise with that at all. Yeah. Last week, Cardinal Joseph Zen was tried and found guilty of failing to register a now-defunct fund to help people arrested in those widespread protests three years ago. Following his sentencing, he spoke to reporters. I'm just a Hong Kong citizen who strongly supports providing humanitarian assistance. Although I'm a religious figure, I hope this won't be associated with our freedom of religion. It's not related. Uh, your reaction to those comments, and are you surprised by the lack of intervention from the Vatican on Zen or any of these uh, protests that are currently happening in China? Cardinal Zen is one of the world's great heroes. 
and he should never have been tried in the first place. Um, he should never have been convicted. Um, I guess we can't be surprised because the outcome of the trial was um, always uh, known. Um, you know, the, the Vatican should support um, Cardinal Zen. Um, it's, in a sense, not surprising because Pope Francis has shown that he wants to work with Beijing and has made concessions which I think are not in the interest of the church. Um, but in any event, um, I do hope that Pope Francis um, changes his views about uh, communist China because Xi Jinping means to eliminate all faith, including Catholicism, in China. And he should understand that there is no compromise with Xi Jinping. Yeah. Uh, Gordon, before I let you go, uh, Jimmy Lai, uh, who's, you know, another hero and heroic figure in Hong Kong, who stood up for the democracy movement, stayed behind when he could have left before he was arrested. Um, he, like Cardinal Zen, you know, they were they were found guilty of minor offenses, but then they that begins uh, to to be established as predicate um, and, and evidence of their wrongdoing. And then the Chinese communists keep upping the charges and dragging them into deeper uh, uh, prosecutions here. Where do you see his case? Uh, it looks like he's not going to be able to bring in the lawyers he hopes to bring in, a British lawyer, um, and he's being tried by a judge panel rather than a jury. Jimmy Lai I'm talking about here. Yeah, Jimmy is another hero, as you mentioned. Um, he's, I believe, 75. Um, he will yeah. be in jail for the rest of his life unless uh, someone intervenes. And so far, we have not seen the Biden administration do anything in that regard. Um, Jimmy is a uh, beacon. He is unbreakable. And um, we can only hope that uh, the United States and others will rally to him. But uh, in any event, mm -hmm. we know that communism will never break Jimmy Lai. Yeah. Gordon, we will leave it there, but I agree with you. And uh, Bill McGurn's great piece in The Wall Street Journal this week, which I posted on my Twitter feed, people can go read it, uh, calling out the, the, the fact that this is really exposing the big lie in China and the uh, fraudulence of their justice system, uh, this entire kangaroo court surrounding uh, Jimmy Lai and, I might add, Cardinal Zen. Gordon Chang, we'll leave it there for the latest columns by Gordon. You can visit him on Twitter, at Gordon Chang. Thank you again. Thank you very much, Raymond. German bishops relaxed restrictions for same-sex and divorced remarried church employees just days after their ad limina visit with the Pope. How did that ad limina visit go? And how's the German church latest move being received in Rome? Joining me now to discuss this and the new turns in the Vatican financial crisis is Rome correspondent for the National Catholic Register, Edward Penton. Ed, I want to begin with this story you reported last week. Just days after returning from their ad limina visit in Rome, the German bishops announced this change in ecclesiastical labor law so that employees of the Catholic Church in Germany will no longer be threatened with dismissal if they're divorced and remarried outside the church or living in a same-sex relationship. The German bishops' conference passed the new law with a two-thirds majority during, during their plenary meeting, stating, quote, the core area of private life, especially relationships and intimacy, are not subject to legal assessment. Diversity in church institutions is an enrichment. 
all employees can be representatives of God's unconditional love and thus of a church that serves the people, regardless of their specific tasks, their origin, their religion, their age, their disability, their gender, their sexual identity, and their way of life. What does that mean for the laity working in Germany, Ed, and how was this news received in Rome? Well, this is um, a development, if you like, uh, from an earlier ruling that they made in, back in 2015, which, which first of all started relaxing the, these rules for, for church employees in Germany. Uh, it's, it's gone a step further in that it's now basically, they've basically given up on, on any kind of uh, discipline regarding employees, whether they uh, abide by the church's teaching uh, or not in private when it comes to uh, sexual relations or or otherwise if they're divorced and remarried or so forth. Um, so it's it's become a lot more uh, relaxed in that way. Uh, it's as I say, it's something that they've been uh, wanting to do for a while. The church is the biggest employer in Germany. It's got I think a number of eight hundred thousand employees, mainly um, employees in in uh, humanitarian field in in uh, health and and so mm -hmm. forth and and aid and humanitarian um uh, organizations and so there's a lot of um a lot of people who are dependent on the church for this um i've also heard that there's a shortage of staff as well so that's also partly to do with it so they want to to attract more staff um and so relax the rules as well of in that regard mm -hmm. so, so there's there's various rules um points around this which are which are relevant to it um but the overall mm. uh thrust of it is that they're wanting to relax this because um they're becoming more and more secular in germany the church is becoming very secularized yeah. and just another aspect of it yeah ed during the german bishops ad limina visit which uh, took place at the vatican a couple of weeks ago a proposal from the Vatican to cease and desist this contested German synodal path was made, and the German bishops rejected it. Now, the synodal path began in 2019 to respond, supposedly, to the clerical sex abuse crisis in Germany, and it has a few goals—to give lay people more prominent roles in church leadership, to ordain women priests, and to bless same-sex unions. Now, Ed, the German bishops, as I said a moment ago, they've not heeded the Vatican warnings about the direction of this synodal path. How did the ad limina visit go? And what are you hearing about what more the Vatican may need to do to bring these German bishops under some kind of control and to keep them in communion? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that that, that, that change in the uh, employment labor law came d days after they were here for the ad limina visit. It was um, literally the following week that they agreed to that by a two-thirds majority, the German bishops. So um, clearly, whatever they said at the ad limina didn't really uh, resonate with them, and they've carried on pretty much as they were before. Um, and in fact, Bishop mm -hmm. Betzing, the president of the German bishops, has said, really, well, we're going to go ahead with whatever we want to do, and, and Rome can't can't tell us really what what we can do or not. Um, so it seems as though the the Vatican has, although they tried, um, certain prelates did try to to explain to them the, the seriousness of the of the route they're taking. Mm -hmm. um, they seem very much convinced to continue. And uh, I think the Vatican, as far as I know, they're 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 really they really don't know what quite what to do now. And uh, I think without the Pope giving a clear direction of to to stop this or to um they did try to as you say temporarily halt it and that was rejected by the bishops mm -hmm. um 
But then there was no follow-up. There was no Vatican statement or or push to say, well, no, we do want a moratorium, um, and you're going to have to do it. They didn't do that. They didn't um, uh, really create a uh, enforce any sort of sanction on them. Uh, so I think they're just likely to continue. The other interesting aspect uh, or event that happened um, this week is that the Belgian bishops were also on the ad limina visit here, and they were pushing mm -hmm. for uh, blessings of same-sex couples. Um, and that, too, wasn't really uh, given any kind of sanction by the Vatican. And they were kind of let allow, allowed to leave with it, thinking that that could happen um, with impunity. So um, so both the German bishops and the Belgian bishops seem to be uh, quite happy, happily going along their way um, without the Vatican seemingly having much influence or doing much to stop them. Yeah, uh, Pope Francis met with those German bishops for about two hours, but nothing was released. There was no public... Uh, uh, address released to the public or, or made public. Uh, the president of the German Bishops' Conference, Bishop George Betzing, you mentioned this a moment ago, following the meeting with the pope, he released a statement. He said, the audience with Pope Francis encouraged us. Here, too, the different positions within our bishops' conference were presented. The Holy Father made it clear to us that tension is necessary. He also spoke of tension he experiences and that fact and the fact that courage and patience are needed to find a solution. Our discussions in Rome were tough but civil, and we sense that dialogue can, and indeed did, succeed in this way. Ed, is this the way the Vatican understood it, do you think? Well, it's hard to say, because there's so many different sort of viewpoints here. Um, you've got Cardinal um, Paralin, Cardinal Willette, the Congregation Prefect of the Dicastrium of Bishops, um, who were quite strong in in criticizing them. Cardinal Parolin said that there should be reform um, in the church, not outside the church, um, implying that this is all happening outside the church. Uh, so I think there was a concern about that. But what I thought was interesting was that the Pope, uh, usually he will re release his statement that he gives to bishops on their ad limita visit. It's often, uh, it's usually always a uh, uh, published, but there was no statement, despite talking to them for two hours. So I think that was an interesting mm -hmm. point, too. I don't know quite what the reasoning was behind for that, but it seems like he's trying to keep a distance from all of what's going on and perhaps doing things behind the scenes. Who knows? Hmm. In a recent opinion column published by an Austrian online Catholic magazine, Bishop Marian Eleganti, who is the former auxiliary bishop of Chur in Switzerland, said of this upcoming synod on synodality in Rome, he said the church was not on the wrong track for 2,000 years and uh, in need to be enlightened and corrected by a synodal process in the 21st century. The proposals that have been repeatedly put forward are poured over and over again into new bottles on which the labels listening, inclusivity, welcoming, diversity, equality are now stuck in a kind of marketing campaign that sells yesterday's news as the latest news, an all-inclusive love which approves and blesses everything that people do because all are children of God, a God that then stops to be the truth and justice that exclude error and sin, end quote. What are you hearing from the bishops in and around Rome about this synod on synodality, Ed, and the direction it seems to be taking? 
Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of, quite a lot of discontent about it. Uh, that's what I've been hearing from from bishops. Obviously, they don't want to go public with this, but I think there is um, a lot of concern about this, about who is really behind it, what sort of agenda they're pushing. Of course, they deny frequently that there is an agenda. Or some would say too frequently. They they seem to protest rather too much about that. Some would argue, um, but they they there is some concern about this, and and I. I think what's interesting is is that the people behind it seem to be have a certain ideological uh, framework. They seem to be having that mm. sort of um, view and vision of the church, which is um, clearly of a certain bent, and they and they are pushing that. And um, it seems as though those who are on the more orthodox wing, uh, the conservative wing, don't get a look in. And um, I read an article last week about uh, the the makeup of the people behind the. The document, the the big, right. the major document that came out about the next phase of the synod, um, and they were all uh, very much of a sort of <clears throat> ideological uh, framework, very much sort of a progressive one, um, and a lot of Jesuits too behind it. Uh, and it, you know, it, it. What is interesting is that you know the it's run by, for example, two cardinals, Cardinal Hollerick and and Cardinal Grech, who are similarly uh, have that sort of uh, angle, that sort of viewpoint. And one wonders why there isn't a, perhaps a third cardinal on the on the head of the synod secretariat who is perhaps knowingly conservative or knowingly well known as a sort of orthodox cardinal. But that hasn't happened, and I don't think it will happen. And that I think is some mm -hmm. indication about where the, the direction they're wanting to take this synod. Well, in that article uh, for the Register, you asked why not include experts known for their orthodoxy and understanding of tradition rather than people coming from the, uh, you know, more progressive or radical side of the church. And uh, a source told you, quote, we wanted a group able to work together and not include people who think totally differently, who'd stop who'd force us to stop because they're not open to listening. Your thoughts on that, Ed, and, and what we can expect to hear out of this Senate uh, over the coming year, it sounds like they've stacked the decks again. There's a, 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 an exclusive club being invited in the name of the church and to represent the people of God, when indeed this is the people of the, the, the left in the church, the more progressive side of the church exclusively. Yes, and it, they often talk, too, about politicization. The Holy Father does, too, politicization, divisiveness, and polarization. Mm -hmm. um, but often those three things come uh, from those who are supportive of the synod. Uh, you often see it in the rhetoric that's given out. Um, so it's not really coming from the other side so much as, as those who are behind the synod. So it does make you wonder. Uh, really, what what is this agenda? Why is that? Why is there such an exclusion of those who want to uphold tradition and and uh, orthodoxy? And I think that quote that I quote there from a synod official, yeah. I think, was very much uh, revealing because I think it shows that they don't want anyone who's going to to block, as he said, their discussions, um, and they don't want anyone to to stop that agenda moving forward. So I think it was very revealing, and I, I, I think that all the signs point to that being the case. Yeah, well, dialogue is really easy when there's only one voice, you know. But uh, I want to get into another story making headlines this week. On Saturday, Cardinal Angelo Beshu uh, met with Pope Francis two days after prosecutors filed new evidence against the cardinal. 
it shows that Feishu secretly recorded the Pope discussing state secrets. Feishu allegedly conspired with members of his family to embezzle church funds as well. According to reports, the call was recorded on a mobile phone belonging to Beishu's niece on July 24, 2021, just days before his trial was set to begin. On the call, Beishu can be heard asking Francis to confirm that he approved a 2018 plan for the Vatican to bankroll ransom payments to free a kidnapped Colombian nun via a London private security consultancy. Pressed by the Cardinal, Francis says he only remembers the proposal vaguely. And then he asks Beishu to put his questions in writing. Ed, how has Rome reacted to this? And um, the Pope met with Beishu on Saturday, presumably to discuss this secret recording. The meeting wasn't listed on the Pope's schedule. What are you hearing? Well, I mean, it's it's what what I think is interesting about this this exchange. It shows how much Cardinal Betchu um, has a certain authority. It seems over the Pope. I mean, he can seems to be able to tell him what to do, and he was commanding the conversation. Of course, the Pope had just got out of hospital at that time, just a week after his operation last year. Um, mm -hmm. But it does show that Cardinal Betchu does seem to have um, a certain leverage and. It has led to some people suggesting possibly that there, there's some sort of uh, even blackmail going on, but that's obviously a, a, a rumor that's that's a rumor that's been going along for, for some time. But otherwise, other mm. people will say that it's simply because Cardinal Betchu um, did have a lot of leeway when he was sostituto, which was a, a considerably influential position, um, and that simply yeah. carried over. Um, even when he left the office, and uh, and that uh, the Pope still respected him for the for his ability to to uh, get things done and and manage things, even if um, some might argue they seemed rather unorthodox, shall we say? Yeah. I, I want to move on to the story you broke earlier this month and uh, your interview with Libero Milone. Now he is the Vatican's first ever Auditor General who is now suing the Vatican in what he and his former deputy claim were unlawful dismissals back in 2017. Were you surprised by Milone's decision to sue the Vatican? Not really, uh, Raymond, because I've heard about this case. I've been following this case for a while, and um, I know mm. that uh, uh, Mr. Maloney has been trying for a long time to try to clear his name, to, to have the Vatican clear his name because he feels like he's been unjustly um, dealt with here with an unlawful dismissal. So I think I think the time has has gone on and, and the Vatican uh, seemed to be stringing him along a bit. Um, and I think he just mm -hmm. ran out of patience and, and felt he had to make this claim because the Vatican wasn't moving. Um, and as he says, he's, he's been damaged in reputational ways with his and also his family and uh, and so forth. And so he feels um, it's a matter of justice that he receives damages and his deputy, uh, which is another case. Yeah. So I think um, it's not a surprising uh, turn of events given uh, given his protestations of innocence well, and the background to the case. And Ed, you interviewed Maloney about his resignation. Watch this. Uh, the matter refers to the summer of 2017 when uh, I was uh, asked to resign together with my, um, one of my deputy auditors. We resigned uh, under um, uh, threat of uh, being arrested um, because they had delivered to us a decree 
uh, what you would call a criminal decree saying that we had uh, been spying and uh, we were accused of embezzlement. Now, neither of the two things ever happened. But evidently, these very much more sophisticated procedures were uncovering things that somebody didn't want us to uncover. Hmm. Ed, um, he's basically being charged with spying on Vatican officials. Uh, they knew exactly where documents were. Whistleblowers had directed Maloney to certain documents. He had them in his drawer. And uh, it, some of this involved Cardinal Beishu again. And when they invaded his office, they knew right where to go to find that evidence. So what's happening here? And will he get justice? I mean, I know the Pope met with movie stars and transgender folks. He has yet to meet with uh, Mr. Maloney, despite the fact that he's been trying to meet with the Pope for years. Yes, I mean, this is the thing. I th <clears throat> he's, he's, he's written to the Pope seven times, trying to, to get him an, uh, an audience or at least some response from him, and he's heard nothing. Um, so, yes, I think uh, there's, there's, a, there's a significant injustice here in the sense that he feels very much... And uh, when you look at the case, it seems quite convincing that he's been framed, um, that he was getting too much information through his auditing. And he's a very professional auditor, uh, by all accounts. Um, he was getting so much information mm -hmm. that uh, they wanted to stop him. And he was uncovering things which they didn't want uncovered. And so so I do think uh, there's a case to be answered for here. I think many do. Um, but the Vatican is responding in a, in a way that they're trying to close it down. They're trying to make a claim against him now. Um, accusing him again of spying, which he uh, categorically denies, um, and uh, and also that yeah they're, they're just trying to they also denied that he could have a, a a high a high profile lawyer defend him. They said that that right. wasn't uh, possible, um, which as somebody pointed out was a rudimentary violation of due process. So so there's a lot of um, problems here, um, and uh, we'll see how it works out. But I think the. Some people believe that the chances of um, Mr. Maloney receiving justice is, is uh, slim, um, but we'll see. Yeah, well, they, as you said, they won't admit his lawyer. And as a result of that, they're basically shutting down the case before it gets to the court. So there is no justice for this poor man. So we'll keep watching this case. But uh, like you, I'm, I'm, I'm not too... Uh, uh, confident that he'll see justice. Before we go, this weekend, the Vatican, in a statement, expressed surprise and regret when they heard word that Bishop John Peng Weizhou, appointed by Pope Francis in 2014, was installed last week as an auxiliary bishop of a diocese in China not recognized by the Vatican. Ed, what are critics in Rome saying about this? I mean, we still have no idea what's in that Vatican-China agreement. But should the Vatican really be surprised that uh, the CCP is appointing their own bishops? Right. Well, I mean, this is something that, of course, Cardinal Joseph Zen had warned about for many years that this would happen. Um, right. So for them to say they're surprised, I think people are a bit taken aback um, when they were warned about this uh, for many years. I mean, the Vatican continues to say, and and they would say about this too, or they, they, don't, they haven't uh, commented much about it, but they, they say that there must be patience, that time will tell, and they will eventually um, find the solution that they want with China. Um, and they just need to bide their time and keep keep patient. Um, the Pope, uh, as he said in a recent interview, uh, respects China a lot, and and so he thinks that they will come around eventually. Um, but I think the sense is that you know they were warned about this, and um, 
and they shouldn't be surprised about it. Um, and uh, and I think this bishop um, clearly was an underground bishop who was forced to uh, to be uh, consecrated mm -hmm. an auxiliary bishop against probably against his will. Um, and uh, and it's all part of this sinicization that the Chinese authorities are trying to impose on the church, especially in Hong Kong now, mm -hmm. which is really to uh, impose right. a Chinese model of socialism and support for the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, which um, which is surprising in a sense that the church, I think many would say, is not kicking back more against this yeah. this sort of uh, mm. pressure that's being put on the church there. Uh, Ed, um, America Magazine, the Jesuit Magazine, uh, published an exclusive interview with Pope Francis this week. Uh, in it, the Pope reiterated the church's stance on abortion, women's ordination, some other topics. When pressed on that question of the Vatican's silence on China's human rights violations, the Pope, as you mentioned a moment ago, said this, it's not a matter of speaking or silence. That is not the reality. The reality is to dialogue or not to dialogue. And one dialogues up to the point that is possible. With China, I've opted for the way of dialogue. It is slow, it has failures, it has its successes, but I cannot find another way. There are Christians there, they have to be cared for so that they may be good Chinese and good Christians. Pope Francis was not pressed about the specifics of that China-Vatican deal or why they've been so silent about the plight of one of his own cardinals, Joseph Zen. Your thoughts on that omission from, you know, the follow-up in that interview? Yes, I mean, it was a pity in a way because, I mean, that's the question that uh, everyone would like to put to him. And uh, it, But I think what was also revealing about that interview was his praise for uh, Cardinal Agostino Casaroli, who was the architect of the Ostpolitik mm. approach to to Soviet communism, which was largely criticised afterwards, um, back in the 80s and uh, during the Cold right. War, and it was seen as a failure because it caused uh, it was appeasement and it caused a lot of harm in the process, and it was really trying to do what the Pope uh, is trying to do now, which is to dialogue with the Chinese authorities in the hope. Um, that some sort of solution could be found. Um, and uh, he was quite in revealing, I thought, that he gave quite a lot of warm praise to Cardinal Casseroli, um about that mm. approach. And uh, I think, um, as I say, I think uh, people feel that this has been discredited and, and the Pope should be pursuing a different uh, course with, with, with China and the Chinese Communist Party, but he isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, dialoguing and bargaining with a slave state is always a bad idea, I think. And, and uh, the other popes had been so cautious about giving their blessing, um, making it seem as if the Vatican was in any way embracing this totalitarian approach and, and thug tactics toward those in the faith. Uh, and we, we've seen that doctrine basically thrown out the window in the name of this dialogue. We'll see what it achieves. Ed Penton, thank you. We will leave it there. The indispensable reporting of Ed Penton over at the National Catholic Register can be found at ncregister.com, and you can pick up a copy of Ed's book, The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.